Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is going to be a little bit of a different podcast as our guest for today's episode was unable to make it. So in true spirit of uh, the show must go on, we're going to change it up a little bit. And I'm going to bring my podcast producer Wyatt on and we're going to have a discussion uh, between the two of us. And uh, we talked just a few minutes beforehand about some of the topics that we could discuss. Uh, So we're going to basically bring up all the things that are happening in the world right now and how crazy everything is going and unpredictable and really just try to have a conversation through the lens of myself being a broker and a real estate investor and we have a few questions lined up but I'll also open it up uh, basically as an ask me anything if there's anything that comes to mind that you want to talk about pertaining to the economy containing to the commercial real estate brokerage or industrial real estate put in the chat try to answer as many questions as we can uh, depending if anybody is uh, tuned into this or not and uh, it should be an exciting conversation because Wyatt is a is an awesome podcast producer and I I as you guys know I like to talk a lot so who knows maybe this will uh, turn into be an entertaining uh, episode nonetheless so uh, Wyatt if you don't mind popping on Hey, Wyatt, how's it going? Amazing. Glad to uh, imp- improvise with you. Yeah, so you're usually the the brains and the hard work behind the scenes, making sure everything goes uh, goes according to plan. And and when things don't go according to plan, then you all of a sudden become the the face of the show too. So welcome to the to the front facing side of the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Maybe uh, maybe calling me the the brains of it is a little too too much credit, but uh, but yeah, uh, be able to sh- put myself out there like this. Happy to do it. Awesome. So why don't we jump into uh, just the discussion on what's happening in the in the economy, in the world of real estate. There's a lot of intersection between the two. What happens in one often spills over to the other. So why don't we just jump in? Uh, maybe you have a question you want to tee up for what's happening in the world right now, how it's affecting uh, industrial real estate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, a lot of a lot of good questions uh, that that I want to that I want to ask you. So I'm glad that uh, that I even have the opportunity to jump on here. So Let's start with uh, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. Um, it's uh, pretty pretty crazy over there. There's um, lots of things that are changing, and obviously one of them is is real estate in those countries. So how how is real estate affected in uh, in this war that's going on right now in that part of the world? Yeah, hard hitting question to kick it off. Hey, eh? no no uh, small talk. We'll just jump right into the big topics of the day. Absolutely. I, I, I'm far from qualified to talk about. Uh, European relations and and the backstory of even going back pre ninety one when the Soviet Union broke up and it split off and and fast forward to today and it seems like Putin's trying to recover some of that lost Soviet uh, power but I, I think that goes way back even before then and and I'm just not an expert to talk about the 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 war itself but what I can talk about on that is how it's impacting investor sentiment and I'm hearing about this regularly is that that people are just concerned about the uncertainty of it. And anytime there's uncertainty in the real estate market, it tends to cause not all, but most investors, some trepidation, and they, they tend to slow down their, their decision-making. So when, when we see uncertainty like that, it's not even just the Russia invading the Ukraine, it's everything that could happen after. Uh, does, do any of these NATO countries get involved? Uh, if Putin is successful in, in taking over Ukraine, does he then try and go into some of the old Soviet uh, countries like Poland, which is a NATO country? And then there's all the other issues of, of China perhaps uh, getting involved in some capacity. Does China invade Taiwan? Like these, these are all questions that I'm, I'm not qualified to, to answer, but these are questions that are percolating in, in some investors' minds. So 
we, we we're, we're a little nervous as a, not just as a brokerage and an investor community, but we're a bit concerned on, on just how long this lasts. So the, the biggest thing that I would say right now is that very few people outside of Russia and Ukraine are are affected by it unless they're Ukrainian. And, and my heart truly does go out to them because I it's it's one of the saddest things seeing some of these images. Uh, but for the the investor community, for the most part, it's still business as usual. But if this escalates to another level, and, and I think that that's what people are concerned about. Uh, so if, if that is the case, then then I think I'd be very worried uh, about this escalating and getting to a level where we perhaps, uh, it, it does start bringing more of the world into it. So uncertainty is the problem at this point. Yeah. And, and uh, it, does that, does uncertainty even mean with uh, like how, how much uh, homes go for in, in, in those parts of the world? And uh, like with, is that, is that what you're talking about when you mean uncertainty in regards to real estate? I, I would say it's more just even investor confidence, right? It's anytime that, uh, and it could be, it could be the whole spectrum. It could be somebody buying their first house all the way up to someone buying a hundred million dollar portfolio. People that are making purchases of, of, of any denomination are just going to be concerned what's going to happen with that, that money going out. If this does turn into a world war three, does that devalue the investment that they just made, whether it's a $400,000 house or a hundred million dollar portfolio. So that that's what leads to that uncertainty is just, uh, it, it starts creating a little bit of doubt, uh, on whether their investment is going to be the right decision. So quite often, and I've seen this in the in 17 years that I've been in the business is that anytime there is a situation like this where it does cause some doubt, then people tend to just push their decision-making down the road. Uh, again, not all, uh, but a lot of people do just wonder, well, what happens if I just wait a month to get some better clarity on what happens with the situation before committing to something right now? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. So, so when, when you say, when you say uncertainty, it's people that are, that want to invest in that part of the world, but they're unsure of, of what's going to happen. And so do they, so is it that they decide I'm going to now take my wealth to another part of the world uh, and now Ukraine, Russia, those parts of the country, those parts of the world loses that wealth coming to them uh, or, or, or is it, or is the downside that they just wait and, and see and sees what happens? I, I think it's the latter. I, I think people generally just say, let's just sit on the sidelines for a little bit longer until we have some clarity on this. And that could be an investor buying in Los Angeles, in Ottawa, in in Brazil, it could be an investor anywhere, even though that that war isn't directly affecting them, uh, just the indirect effects of what could happen if this escalates into a bigger problem tends to cause people just a little bit of concern. Now, there'll still be people that go forward. They, they might be taking a longer term outlook on this and and they say these short term aberrations are are just a, a distraction. And that, that's an insensitive word to to describe this catastrophe happening in Europe. But from from the standpoint of looking at things over a long term, there's always going to be noise on that on that spectrum. There's always going to be distractions. There's always going to be things that come up and there's always reasons not to make a decision. I've learned this many times over the years. There's always reasons not to do something. Mm -hmm. Like you could say anything. You, we could talk about inflation and interest rates and high, high gas prices and the uncertainty in, in the world. There's always going to be reasons. A year ago, it was, it was the pandemic. Before that, there was every year, there's something that happens that could, that could cause people to say, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm just going to wait. 
And if you keep taking that attitude, if you keep waiting for something that's happening to postpone your decision, then you're never going to actually make a decision. So there are going to be investors that, that are still bullish about the long-term prospects of the economy and they're going to move forward ahead. Uh, but there's also going to be people that are concerned and they're just going to say this, this could be a once in a lifetime event where we could be entering into a new world war and we just want to see what actually happens with this. So there's, there's going to be the full spectrum of investors on that. Okay, very interesting. Uh, so one one other question I have about that is, um, I've heard before that during recessions or um, during depressions or times of economic hardship, that there are people that uh, were at the top and come to the bottom, and there are people that were at the bottom and come to the top in those times. And and there's a lot of there's a lot of shifting of wealth. Um, and uh, does uh, a war in Ukraine with with Russia? Do you think that has the same effect on um, certain parts of of uh, of investing where um or, or certain pieces of wealth where um now like a, like a recession there's just different opportunities for people and like a war there's people lose and people win and um it, does it does it work the same way are there people gaining tons of wealth and people losing tons of wealth due to a war like there is with a depression or recession yeah i'd say for those direct areas well war is is not a zero-sum game war is a lose-lose proposition I, I i don't see an outcome where where russia or ukraine certainly not Ukraine come out ahead of this. Uh, a friend of mine, Scott Edward, put out a video the other day talking about Russian oligarchs, uh, about how they're having assets and things seized all over the world. Like, I, I can't see a scenario where this turns out better for, for some of these wealthy investors that are directly in, in Russia and Ukraine. I, I'm a big believer in, in long-term appreciation of real estate. I, I I'm that's, that's my standpoint as an investor is I'm a very conservative long-term outreach, long-term outlook kind of investor where, where I think if you can hold real estate for 10 to 20 years and you can cash flow along the way, and you're not going to be stressed out about a tenant perhaps leaving, you've got, you've got the bandwidth and the, and the capacity to handle any type of those aberrations. I believe that you can get wealthy with real estate over time. I'm not a believer in trying to make money in real estate as, as like the get rich quick scheme. That's just not right. my style. I've, I've, I've seen very, very few people who've been successful in it in, in terms of, of getting rich only by doing that. There's people that, that have flipped properties and, and they've made a lot of money doing that, but they already had a solid foundation. It wasn't some guy that just came out of high school and started flipping properties and, and it was ultra successful later. That's that it's a long-term game, uh, for, for that. So I, I tend to be on that side that this is a, this, this is a catastrophic world event, uh, and, and it's incredibly sad, uh, and I don't want to diminish what's happening there, but I do think that, that, well, maybe I should say, I hope, because I really have no idea. I hope that this, uh, is uh, settled quickly. And I think that the trend line over given enough time still goes up, but in the short term, it's, it's possible that there could be there could be a recession, there could be a, a correction at the very least, and that could erode uh, some wealth. But I, I, I don't recommend to anybody that they're, they're buying investment grade real estate with the intent of selling it in a year or two. I, I just don't think that that's the right strategy. They, they might have some luck with it. Maybe they get a property under value and they're able to immediately add value and, and either refinance or sell it out down the road. And, and that's a success story. But for every one of those success stories of a short-term investor making money, there's the opposite of a, an investor that lost money. So I think given enough time, uh, this, this could be an issue, this, this European, uh, uh, war that's going on, which hopefully it's restricted to that area. 
but if it uh, if it escalates, it, it could could be a longer term thing. Uh, I should say medium term thing. But I still think given enough time, given enough holding power, if you can hold real estate for 10 to 20 years, I think you're still going to come out much further ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and as a, a uh, amateur real estate uh, student, uh, if there's one thing I've learned is, is uh, you don't want to uh, listen to the people that say you can real estate is a get rich quick uh, method, right? Um, it's it, like, like you just said, if you can buy it smart and hold on to it for a long time, then you can create, create wealth with it. But, uh, but people that say, oh yeah, just buy a house, flip it, you know, make a hundred grand, do that a couple times a year, no problem. Uh, you're, you're missing something, right? They're not, they're not telling you the whole story. Um, and uh, so w- one thing that, um, you know, just occurred to me while you were talking there uh, about while you were answering that question was that uh, there's so many parts of what's going on in Ukraine that um, is so obvious, like like war is horrible. It must be hard for people to feed themselves. Obviously, people can't go to work like, uh, you know, the whole country has changed drastically. But one thing that didn't jump out to me and it wasn't a, uh, that I just didn't think of until you were answering that question was that um, people now can't pay their rent right and uh so it's it's the same thing that was going on here when um with uh with covid and people are out of work they can't pay their rent the government has to subsidize them so people can live uh and so the the economy keeps running one way or another but when a war is happening and people all the women and children had to leave all the men are not going to work every day now now they're staying and and having to fight for for their home then um these guys how are they paying the rent how are these landlords getting their money how I mean, how is and and now the government it doesn't have the resources to subsidize those people to 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 pay them. So um, that's just one part of a, a war that didn't occur to me is that people now can't work and can't pay their rent. And now, like um, just those chain of events that uh, aren't the most the most obvious thing when you think of war. Yeah, well, and, and look directly inside uh, Russia and Ukraine. Like U- Ukraine's is it's unimaginable what they're going through on, in terms of of bullets and missiles hitting their buildings but from an economic standpoint look at all the all the the wealth which has just been literally destroyed by this atrocity uh it was just so sad to think that not only are these people losing their houses but they're losing their economic lives it's it's so sad uh and then on russia russia with all the sanctions that they've had uh there's there's talk that they could default on some of their uh, uh, some of their debt uh this week so i i really don't see an outcome where where ukraine uh or russia uh, benefit. Obviously, Russia won't, or Ukraine won't, but I don't see anything on Russia either. Like they, they must have some strategy that that we in the West just aren't seeing, uh, because I I don't understand how how they're going to come out ahead on this. But uh, yeah, topic topic for someone uh, wiser than us in in geopolitical tension to to answer than that. But I just know on from a real estate side, it, it just creates uncertainty, and uh, for the most part, investors hate uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's uh, and fairly enough, right? Why would you put your 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 investments in something that that is uncertain? The whole point of it is to <laughs> have have certainty. So yeah, you're uh, that. So I I follow your answer there. Um, so my next question is uh, about um, the correlation right now with uh, inflation um, and gas prices, and uh, you know all of we're we're hearing uh, our politicians and the media tell us uh, gas prices are so high due to what's going on on the other side of the world. Right. And, uh, that doesn't seem like the most realistic answer to me for what's going on for the last three years. Um, and, uh, so your, your take on, um, inflation and gas prices right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we could even take this all the way back to 2020 in, in March when when news was was starting to come in very quickly about the pandemic. And I think the government had no choice but to react the way they did in that beginning just because it was, it was something that there's no playbook for. Uh, there, there, There's never, in our lifetimes anyways, there's never been a pandemic of this level where, where the government could could make a... an intelligent decision about how to respond to it so i think the only thing that they they could do was shut down everything until they at least had an understanding of what they were dealing with and that's controversial i'm sure there's people that said that there should have been nothing shut down i'm sure there's people that said that they should have done even more Uh, i don't know what else more they could have done but i'm sure that there's people that said they should have done more I, i think given how quickly that that came at them. I think that that was the right decision because if we were to place ourselves in those, in those, in their shoes, you just try to make the best decision with the information you have available, available. And when there's uh, not enough information to make an intelligent decision, you just do the best that you can. So I, I don't fault them for what they did in the first month call it maybe you could even shorten that a little bit uh, until they had a better idea what was going on I, th- I think that there's been a series of mistakes since then even continuing to right now but I'm not an epidemiologist I'm not a scientist I'm just a guy talking into a microphone with a headset about the headset that thinks I know a little bit about real estate I think that there were some mistakes that were made but I also appreciate the difficult place that they were put in and the corollary of that is that being put in that position meant that a lot of people were forced to not be able to work. Mm-hmm. So I think that the decision was made, we have this massive issue, so we have to make a binary decision. So it's yes or no. Do we do this? Yes or no. But they didn't take into account everything else, all the externalities and external things that were going to happen in the economy into mental health and everything else that goes with it. Those were pushed to the side. And the issue was how do we keep hospitals from filling up how do we keep people from dying rightfully so i the last thing i would do is ever diminish the importance of of that but there was all these extra things that came up people weren't able to work that meant people weren't able to pay their bills that meant the economy was at risk of completely imploding so it didn't take long it took about a month and we started to see all these new programs roll out and all these new programs centered on spending money it injected a considerable amount of, of money into the system I heard at one point, I haven't checked it uh, recently to see what it was, but I heard that there's 20% of the money supply was added in the last two years. So like the global history of money, 20% was added in the last two years. And anytime you inject that much money into a system, you're going to start seeing what we've seen. It, It shouldn't be surprising to anybody that it's difficult finding cars, used cars. It's difficult finding any consumer goods like bicycles or skiing, anything to do with, with recreation, being outside. It, it, All these things are at a complete shortage, one, because people have more money to spend, and two, because production slowed down because people were forced to stay home for some period of time. So anytime there's a massive shift in the uh, supply-demand balance, you start seeing prices creep up, and that's what we're seeing. Like, it's it's difficult finding a used car right now. Uh, We're seeing that in the real estate market. Uh, On the residential side, multiple multiple bids is common uh, in residential properties, where whereas two years ago when we were entering into this pandemic, who would have thought at that point that fast forward two years would have this rampant inflation, but it's, it's a result of the monetary policy that was adopted, not just by the feds in the U S but uh, uh, banks 
uh, global banks all across the world. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was an issue where every country was printing money. So you have this massive inflation coming up. And I remember Jerome Powell last year said that the inflation was transitory. And I thought that was so comical that, that it's really just the feds trying to keep a handle on the narrative. So they don't want people spooked out if they were to say, oh, this, yeah, inflation is here, get ready for it. Because then it just creates a vicious cycle where people think there's going to be inflation. So then it manifests itself into inflation. Mm. Uh, so they said it was transitory. Now they've since come out. I think the, the way he described the other days, he said, uh, uh, in, we, we should retire that word transitory. Like what, like what a political way to answer a, a question, hey, but you say we should retire the word, word transitory. Right. Not... Not, I made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly there's inflation, uh, but that it's, it, we should retire the word transitory. So I, I think inflation's here. Uh, I, I, and that really leaves a, a couple options for uh, uh, federal banks. Uh, they can either start raising interest rates, which we're starting to hear rumblings of, or, uh, or there's a recession. And, and there's indications of that. The, the, the bond curve is, is flattened right now. There's speculation that that bond curve could invert in the next couple of weeks. And the bond curve, an inverted bond curve has been pretty historically accurate at predicting the next recession. Mm. So it's, it, we're in, a, and that just adds to the uncertainty. So not only do we have that war in Europe, but we have this massive increase in inflation, which is leading investors to think that interest rates are interest rate hikes are imminent, or there's some subtle indications and some not so subtle indications that we might see a recession. So it just all adds to that uncertainty that that the real estate community has to uh, wrap their head around. Yeah, uh, and so do do you think that the ridiculously high gas prices right now are are just uh, have to do with the timing of that, just the from the from the last three years uh, of all the monetary mistakes they've made, and just the timing of uh, that coming to to an end, uh, and gas prices ra raising is just happens to coincide with the timing of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. I think the gas price problem actually goes back to 2013, 2014. Uh, and then that's when uh, gas prices were were really high, just a reflection of oil prices being in the $130, $140 a barrel. Uh, and then the U.S. started uh, uh, drilling more shale plays. That led to the U.S. becoming a much bigger producer of oil. Then we saw oil prices drop dramatically. Uh, look, they were below $30 a barrel for a while. Uh, and when that happened, a lot of, countries started lessening, uh, lowering the amount that they were producing. And that also meant that they were not investing in uh, exploration and finding new uh, places to drill. So when when that happened, when, when oil prices start, started dropping, they just didn't have capacity to add back up. Uh, and then you start, you add in a pandemic in there and demand dropped even further. And that's why at one point we saw minus $37 a barrel oil uh, was the, the demand had just been destroyed. Now, as we're coming out of this pandemic, demand's heating back up. Uh, then now we're faced with not having enough supply and, and there, there, there's calls on OPEC to try and increase production. Uh, Russia was a, is a pretty big producer globally of, of oil and gas, and now they've got sanctions on them. So it really is a function of small swings in supply and demand are causing huge fluctuations in pricing. And we, we went up to about $130 a barrel last week, and it's now since dropped below $100 a barrel. Uh, I have no idea. It's, there's so many 
uncertainties on on what's happening on the market on on what happens uh with with oil uh there's there's competing forces at play. Some people are saying that this war and a potential recession are going to uh, lower demand. So if demand lowers and price should theoretically lower as well. Uh, and then there's also the other side saying that there's so much undersupply of oil that even if it just stays where it is, there's not enough capacity to even meet today's demand. So uh, there, someone at Goldman Sachs uh, might know better, but I, even that, even at Goldman Sachs, I remember in 2000 and 12 2013 there's a uh they they had a prediction that oil was going to hit 200 dollars a barrel at that point and then as we, we know now it went down to under 30 dollars a barrel within a year so no nobody knows like maybe, maybe there's three people in the whole world that know what's going to happen with the price of oil and they're not telling anybody yeah they're keeping those clark those cards close to their chest yep yeah uh so let me jump back to what you said about um uh inflation or recession and uh with somebody that likes to learn about the economy and uh, the, the the Fed and all this kind of stuff, uh, there's a lot that I still am very confused about. So let me ask you one question about um, wh about what you said. So if the only uh, options for the for the government are to um, or for the the World Bank are to uh, in increase inflation, or we're going to have, or, or I'm sorry, increase interest rates, uh, or we or we have a recession. Uh, which one is the better outcome? Uh, if it, it seems like if we, you know, if we have, if they raise interest rates, you pay more for money, right? And there's less people that can go borrow. Um, if we have, have a recession, um, you know, tr truthfully, I don't, I, I don't even know the, uh, I know there's, there's a difference between a recession and a depression. Um, but in, in your mind, what's, what's the, the better outcome for, regular guys like like you and me like what what are, what are you hoping for are you hoping for a recession or are you hoping they'll raise interest rates um what's what, what's the best outcome i guess is my question with that yeah there's actually a, a defined term that that they use to uh, indicate a, a recession and it's two consecutive quarters of negative gdp growth uh -huh. and a, a depression is two consecutive years of negative gdp growth so it's just it's a longer period essentially of, of negative gdp yeah gdp <laughs> growth so Two, uh, two that's all it takes to to to, to actually uh, announce a recession to cause a recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth. Two consecutive quarters. Yep, that's so, that's a defined recession from an wow. economist standpoint. That doesn't seem like a a high standard to cause a recession. That's maybe it seems like there's a lot more recessions going on if that's the standard than I than I realize. Yeah, and recessions actually typically don't last that long either. Like a, a, an average recession might be a year or so. Uh, a long recession might be coming in on two years because anything over two years, you're technically getting into depression territory anyways. But recessions on, on average don't last that long. And the threshold isn't high. Two negative quarters of, of, of GDP growth. Uh, but that's that's a defined economic uh, interpretation of a recession. People might right. feel a recession much earlier, uh, and they might even feel recessionary effects. You know, if, if someone loses their job, that's going to feel like a recession to them, even though it might not be a, the, uh, an economic definition of being recession. So pe people right. can feel different effects, but just from a textbook standpoint, that's what they use to define it. I, I don't know what, uh, what I would prefer on that. Uh, I, I think that if if the feds could come and gradually increase interest rates i don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing because we've been dealing with historic historically low interest rates for a long time now and low interest rates punish savers uh like if, right. if you're saving money right now in 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 a 
in a fund or in a, in a bond or just trying to, to get earn a, a small return as a saver right now you're being punished by low interest rates so i don't think it's it's necessarily a bad thing to to increase those interest rates from where they are but that causes a whole lot of pain for everybody uh look at all the money that that's been printed by the governments uh, uh at, at low interest rates it's not a it's not a big debt servicing obligation but as as you start increasing this now you've got to take money that the government would be using for other things and you got to use that to service the debt if interest rates go up and that's that's across the board that's that's federal that's state provincial uh municipality it's there's everybody has taken on more debt over the last couple of years uh it, homeowners have uh non-homeowners tenants have businesses have and any increase in interest rate now takes money away from other things that not just governments, but businesses and homeowners can, uh, can deploy as well. So it, it does create problems. Uh, I, I think the government did the best that they could with what they had to keep the economy from outright imploding when it did, but you, you have to ask, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. Cause I don't have an answer for it. Did all that money that they spent really just delay uh, a, a, an economic collapse from happening and economic collapse is probably a strong term on that, but maybe we could even just go back to the, to the definition of a recession. Did, uh, did all this monetary policy decisions that they had and all this money printing, and that's what they did. They just printed money and, and then they used the other arm of the government to buy, buy it back, uh, mm -hmm. through bonds. So it's, it's really just been one hand feeds the other and they're just injecting all this money. And anytime you inject that much money, you're going to have inflation and inflation isn't good either because then, then you start losing in the U S year over year in February, 7.9% was the CPI. Uh, so if you held a dollar, your dollar is now worth 8% less, uh, just, wow. just because of inflation. And in, if you go back to the seventies in the seventies, they had, uh, inflation runaway inflation for years. And that's kind of what led to ultra high interest rates. I, I was born in 80. So this it was before my time on, on when that started creeping up in the, in the, in the seventies, after they got off the gold standard and everything that happened there. But I, I was born in the, in 80. So I still saw these ultra high interest rates. I mean, you hear stories from people that owned houses in the late seventies and eighties, and they had 18, 20% interest. Like, can you wow. imagine, like, just imagine what would happen. If, and I don't think it ever could happen. I think the whole economy would implode, but can you imagine if interest rates went up to 18% right now? No, I can't even, I truthfully can't even imagine what that would look like, like what that would mean for people. Yeah, it's it's a scary thought. So I I I don't know what I would prefer. Uh, I I think uh, as as an investor and as a business owner and broker myself, all I try to do is make the best decisions I can with the information I have available and take a long term horizon and just try to never put myself in a position where I have to scramble to make a decision uh, either from a business standpoint, from a financial standpoint. I I think you just you move and you ebb and flow with with the tide and there's mm -hmm. things you can't control i have no control over what's happening in, in europe uh elon musk wants to uh fight putin so maybe a guy like elon musk has a has some influence that's ridiculous in itself isn't it twitter's a funny uh, place <laughs> it, was, it was very funny if for anyone that didn't see elon musk challenge putin to a to a fight like I'm assuming like a fist fight. I don't know. Or do they arm wrestle? I don't know what it is. I'm sure Putin won't even uh, look at that tweet, but I sure thought it was funny that the richest man in the world challenged a, a, a brutal dictator to, to a street fight. 
but That's like right. we don't have control over any of these things, right? Like it's a, so as an investor or a business owner, or whoever uh, is looking at this, you don't have any control over it. So all you can do is just put your best, put yourself in the best position for success and be prepared to using the buzz term, like, like we used earlier, pivot, just be prepared to, to pivot if you need to. But if you're in a position where you've got a long-term horizon and you can weather storms and weather aberrations in the market like this, I, I think you're putting yourself in the best chance for success. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not looking at, at, uh, for, for lack of a better word, just not looking at short-term investments, but, but thinking what are, what are investments that I want to cash in on in 20, 25 years in the future so that a, a, a recession now, a war in five years, isn't going to uh, Im impact that, that choice in, in, in 20, 25 years. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that's what I would say is, is that nobody knows what's going to happen 20 years out from now. Like there, there's, right. just, there's no idea, but if you look at the trajectory of how the global economy has fared over the last 100 years, you see a trend line that's going upwards. So all I can do as, as an individual making the best decisions I can, is I try to extrapolate that out and, and I'm hoping I, I'm, I can't even say I'm assuming, or I know I'm just hoping that that trend line continues in an upward direction. And, and if it doesn't, then, then I, I still go back to the fact that I made the best decision, the information right. I had available. Uh, and, and maybe along the way you do make a, a, a change or you mix things up. I, I, I think that any good business model is fluid in nature is, is that, uh, like any business uh, there, when they, they're doing their planning or they're doing their year end review. They're looking for opportunities where they can make adjustments to, to the model. And it's no different if you own real estate, if you're owning real estate, you've got a pro forma, you might've done a 10 year projection on it. You're still making adjustments to that. It's a living, breathing document because there's just changes that happen. But I do believe ultimately, and it'd be one of the fundamental principles that I have as an individual investor is that the market will be better in 20 years than it is today. And I just, that, that is the thesis of my investing is that I, I just want to make good decisions. I don't need to make home runs right now. I don't need to, uh, make the best pur purchase decision of the year in the market. I just need to hit singles and doubles. And if I can do that consistently, and if I've got the holding power to weather these storms over time, I just think that I'll be in a better place 20 years from now based on the, the decisions that I make today, but it's, it's still, there's, there's so many things coming at us. So I, I certainly didn't, didn't anticipate two years ago that we'd be running into a pandemic that lasted us two years. And right as we start coming out of that pandemic, a dictator would invade a neighboring country uh, uh, and start a potential World War III. Like that's unfathomable to me uh, that that would the sequence of events would have occurred if you asked me two years ago. But the one thing that, that, that I've learned along the way is that there's always going to be these types of events. There's always going to be unpredictable events that seem like they're once in a century or, or one in a million. But because there's so many different things that can happen, we're going to be faced with this forever. We're always, every year, the media will manufacture some news story to make it seem um, more than it is, or the government will, will manufacture something, or there will actually be a catastrophic event like we're seeing in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, there's always going to be something uh, that, that comes up. So uh, going back to that earlier point, there's always reasons not to do anything. If, uh, if, if you're always looking for an excuse not to go forward on a project, not to start a business, uh, not to, to do something adventurous, you're always going to find a reason not to do it. But uh, 
where's the fun in that right uh, yeah you, like it's like the analogy of, of a ship and there's that famous quote people have heard a, a ship at harbor is safe but that's not what ships are meant for yeah yeah absolutely and uh with um like, like you just said there's too there's too many un unpredictable things that can happen for you to try and say to try for you to try and uh try and hit a home run every time right because uh in there might be another another uh, pandemic in five years. There might be another war in ten, uh, and like you said, there might be something else uh, in the in that twenty twenty five year span. That just because you held on to that in investment doesn't mean uh, that that it uh, that it's going to turn out the way you wanted to wanted it to. But you made your the best choice with the information you had at the time. Um, and uh, so um, great, thanks thanks for answering that. Uh, so we went through um, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, interest rates, inflation, gas prices. Uh, we have uh, one question from uh, Beverly Teresa. Do you want to answer that? Or is there other something, another topic you want to go into? First? Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Beverly too, by the way. So she's got a YouTube channel as well. And she's awesome. So uh, I don't know if we can throw a link into uh, to Beverly's channel after this. Maybe we, we could do it yeah. after the, uh, after this. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Let's take Beverly's questions. And, and again, you guys can see that we're willing to cover literally any question you have in mind so if there's something that you just want to get our, our thoughts on on this i it's a, ask me anything i'll literally answer any question that that you have uh so beverly again thanks for joining in and i appreciate uh your help in in moderating some of the the spam that we have come in i think we had a few funny ones come in last last week where people were trying to direct us to uh or to direct people to some uh let's say triple x site triple x i like that I, I was thinking something different but that sounds that sounds even better so uh thanks for that uh beverly chad how has social media impacted the way you market your listings that's a great question and, and actually i had this conversation with uh with a broker out of uh pittsburgh yesterday actually and we were talking about how uh it's common for a lot of newer brokers to come in and rely heavily on social media and and it, for good reason a lot of a lot of people grew up with with it i mean facebook's been around since 2005 or 2006 uh so a lot of people grew up with social media and they they like to utilize it uh and 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 hope that it brings business i still like taking uh, a bit of an old school approach with with my business and that's because i started uh before social media was prevalent so i I still think it's very face-to-face -face meetings, uh, a, a lot of that old school prospecting, but I've, I've found that uh, social media has complemented it. So it, it hasn't substituted that, that old school technique of, of, of drumming up business or for investors out there for drumming up uh, potential invest investment opportunities. Uh, it hasn't, it hasn't changed. It hasn't replaced that it perhaps is the best way of describing that, but it's certainly uh, complimented it. And I, I've, I've been fortunate to have been on LinkedIn. A, a good friend of mine, Mike Mack, a number of years ago, convinced me to, to take it seriously. And he's, he's the master on LinkedIn. And so I've been on LinkedIn pretty actively for a while. I dabble in Twitter, although I'm not nearly as effective as, as some other people are. Uh, and then just YouTube itself. Uh, YouTube has been awesome. Like I, I've, I'm, I'm really blessed that I've been able to uh, talk to a number of different people all over the world. In fact, I even created a map uh, in my in my office uh, where I'm starting to put little flags on uh, from where I've talked to people, and it's it's wild. Like I've talked to people in in Vietnam, uh, Saudi Arabia, Australia, uh, all uh, Israel. I talked to a guy from Tel Aviv the other day, oh, wow. uh, South Africa, 
numerous places all over North America. And that's been really cool for me just just to hear how people's stories are in, in different markets. I get an overview of what's happening in their market. Uh, so that's been very cool for me. I, I'm, I'm very grateful that uh, that YouTube's given me that platform to, to do that. Uh, but I, I do always say to people is that don't use social media as a, as a crutch uh, to where you're going to be able to generate all your business. Uh, perhaps if you're super outgoing and gregarious and 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 people resonate with you and, and you have that magnetism where people just want to do business with you and you're really popular on Instagram or TikTok, which I have no idea about. Uh, if you're really popular on one of those, you, you might be able to, but I think those people are the anomaly. I, I think that really what you want to do, whether you're a broker or, or in an unrelated business or a property owner, that that face-to-face -face interaction for me anyways, has been the most valuable thing, but I still really enjoy social media as well. So uh, hopefully that answers your question, Bev. And did she have one more uh, she had, she had uh, one one about my background and Bev just answered that question. My background is just a wall, uh, so uh, I, I don't I don't have any anything anything too fancy. Um, and uh, I think she's asking like your background and like how like your background, not oh. not your not your physical background. Like how did you get into this? What's what's your story? Oh, I see. Okay, well, Beverly, if that if that is what you're asking, uh, if you're asking how I got into producing podcasts, um, I love real estate. I love podcasts. And uh, the pandemic made people uh, adapt to, to new ways of finding opportunities. So uh, so I found the skills I need to produce podcasts. And uh, that that's that's how I started doing this. And then uh, when I saw that uh, how many real estate people are doing podcasting and all the opportunities out there, I, I was like, man, I love learning about real estate. I love podcasting. If I could make both of these uh, into into one world then uh that, that would be a pretty sweet gig so uh, i was lucky enough to uh pick up those skills and um and i love it so that's that's how i started doing this and we'll throw a link uh for you wyatt as well for uh for cast flex media in the description after just so people can can check out you as well and about my background is two canvas pictures and then I got a metal gear, which is like right here. And then I got a plant right there. And then I got a little light back there too. That's my background. And I'm sure that I, I, I'm guessing you were talking more like business background, but I felt I'd have to uh, explain that as well. Thanks <laughs> for the question, Bev. Uh, Darren, thanks for joining in, man. Uh, good to see you in here. Uh, I don't know if you caught the beginning, but our, our guest was unable to make it. So we decided to improvise and just have a, a session where, uh, Wyatt and I discussed relevant topics and I've got a few minutes left. So again, I'll, I'll open it up. If anyone has any questions, Darren, if you have anything, uh, I'd, I'd, like I said, I'll, I'll literally answer anything. I don't know if I'll, I'll give like an intelligent answer or, or, or a good answer or one that you're happy with, but I'll literally answer anything. So fire, fire anything our way. We'll, uh, we'll try to answer as much as we can. Uh, so Chad, we have one question that just came in and for some reason it's not popping up, uh, on the, on the screen, but I'll read it to you. Okay. Okay. Shoot. Chad, how are you finding the best way to prospect occupiers in a market where they seem to be getting direct proposals from their landlord and inventory is non-existent uh great question who who asked that one uh marv j marv uh thanks for joining in thanks for the question can you just give me a little bit more uh background on on 
on what it is. So you're saying that there's no inventory. So are you, are you looking for sale leasebacks or are you trying to market a property that's vacant? If you could uh, just fill in a little bit more info on that. Uh, so as you're, as you perhaps typing in that, I'll, I'll start by, by giving a, a generic answer is that landlords are always going to be prospecting or trying to keep the tenants that they have. Uh, and they, they'll usually have a head start on you because if, uh, if a landlord has a property, chances are they've got a right to renew. The tenant has a, a right to renew where they have to give some amount of time to notice and it can range anywhere from three to nine months. Uh, but even just take somewhere in the middle, uh, which is what I see most common anyways, is six months. A tenant has to exercise their right to renew six months prior to the lease expiring. So if the tenant doesn't exercise that right, then the landlord essentially has a six month window where they can start marketing that property to to try and find tenants. So not only will they be aggressive trying to keep the tenant that they have, uh, because if it's a good tenant, they've paid their rent, they're, they're a clean user, then they're definitely going to, to try to keep that tenant as much as possible. But even if they're not able to keep their tenant, they're still going to be able to market that property six months in advance. So in essence, they've, they've got a longer runway than, than some investors that might have a, a vacant property where they're going to be a lot more eager to try and lease a space. Uh, representing occupiers in leases. So they, they would already be in a bill and I, sorry, I'm asking some more questions. I just want to make sure I give you a, a good answer on this. So they, they would be leasing a space and you'd be looking to move them into a new property. Is that kind of what, what I'd be getting at there? They're already in a building, perhaps they've outgrown it or they need maybe they need to downsize or they just want to find a more economic economical solution and you're running into a scenario where the landlord's trying to keep them and and are you a, a follow-up question that to that as well marv are you a broker just well uh Mar marv is uh is answering those questions uh oh okay so marv just says uh he, he will e email you or call. Um, and yes, he is a, a broker. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to chat with you offline on this, Mark. But in the essence of, of not leaving anyone else that's curious, uh, wondering what the answer would be, uh, I'll, I'll try to answer it as, as generically as I can. But again, happy to chat with you more on it. So you're, you're always going to be running up against a challenge that a landlord's going to try to keep their tenants. Just understandably so. That's that's the business that they're in is is leasing space. So if they have an existing tenant in there, they're, they're going to go out of their way to try and keep them. What the value add that you can that you can add to the equation is that if you're working with the tenant and they're already in a building, I would say that you'd want to get a, a mandate letter or for simpler terms, you just want to get an agreement signed with them that you're going to exclusively represent them. And there's two different messages that you're going to want to say, you're going to want, you want to have one message to the tenant and you're also going to want to have one message to the landlord, to the tenant. You're going to say, I want to make sure that you guys get the best space for your business. That's my job. I'm going to go out and I'm going to source every available property in the market. Some that are, aren't publicly listed, some that are off market. It could be situations where there's a tenant coming up for a renewal, but they haven't exercised their lease. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn over every possible rock that I can with the sole intent of get, getting you the best option. And that best option might be that you stay with your current landlord, but there's all the other 
options available that you need to explore in order to say that you did due diligence. You want to make, and I said this earlier in the show, but I stand by it. You want to make the best decision with the information that you have available. And in order to do that, you need to see all the information. And as you can appreciate, it's just going to take me a considerable amount of time to go out and find all these options because I can't just go to a central database and pull this up. I've got to make a number of phone calls. I've got to follow up with people. I've got to cold call people. It's just going to take a lot of time for me to uncover all these. So, so I hope you can appreciate that whether you stay at your current space or whether you go somewhere else, you just agree to work with me and then I get a paid a fee if I'm successful in helping you re renegotiate your lease. And if, if a tenant doesn't see value in that, then maybe you need to craft that message and maybe maybe get a testimonial from someone that you've helped do this uh so that you can show the value but for me it's it's not enough to just say uh, i want to show you some options that are out there and uh i get paid a fee i think you really have to show a value add you have to show what your services bring to that person and how that helps them either solve a problem save them money or or perhaps just make make a, the best decision available if you can if you can show how you you like you alone uh, can solve that problem and then you ask for a fee to commensurate to the work that you have to put in i'd be very surprised if there's a tenant out there that wasn't willing to engage you on that basis and again if if you do run into opposition then start building a case study start showing your background start showing how you've been successful doing this uh get testimonials other case studies that you could use anything to build your case that you're the guy that that's going to go out and, and help them solve their problem to the landlord you want to say a similar but perhaps slightly different message and say the, the the tenant has engaged me to do a full survey of the market to see everything that's available so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go and uncover every rock that i can just to show them options that are out there because i'll be working for them in helping them make the best decision that they can and there's a possibility that they might want to renew with the, the current space that you're in right now. So I just want to uh, see, are you comfortable paying me a fee if after I go through all this work, showing them all the other options, if they decide that your space is still the best one for them, are you comfortable paying me a fee? And I think if you could unravel that from a psychological standpoint of what the landlord uh, is, is seeing in this, and it's not... I wouldn't frame it in a way that it's like you're trying to hold them hostage. I would just say this, this is all the work that I have to do to make sure that these guys make the best decision that they can. And in doing so, there's just a lot of work with that. And if it comes back that they want to lease your space, I hope you could just understand that in me working for the tenant, I just want, I want them to, to make the best decision. And there's a lot of work that goes into it. I hope you'd understand that if they do come back to your space, that you'd be agreeable to pay me a fee. And psychologically, I think what the landlord would say is, well, yes, I want these guys to definitely renew my space. If this broker, if I'm not going to pay this broker a fee and he's going to go and find out all these other options, he's definitely going to be pushing them to another option because he's going to get paid versus me not paying him. So again, I don't, don't, back the landlord up against the wall because every landlord is going to get they get really defensive and they're not going to want to pay a fee if they're put in a position where they feel that they have to but if you're just saying it in a way that this is what i'm going to do i think a lot of landlords would think that way just naturally and they'll say yeah oh you know we'll bake it into the deal we'll just account for your fee in this most sophisticated landlords and and and, and i say this with 17 years of experience under my belt, most sophisticated landlords accept that and they're willing to pay a fee. You will run across some that don't. And at that case, perhaps you want to ask the tenant and just say, uh, 
So I've approached the landlord. The landlord isn't willing to pay me a fee. I'm still willing and able to do this full search for you. Uh, if you do end up renewing, would you be comfortable paying me my fee uh, in the event that we renew? And it should be the same value proposition for a tenant that wants to make sure that they're they're doing the best thing for their business and seeing the entire market on a, on a survey uh, and then exploring all these options. There, there's value to your service. So I think if you if you put it in a, in a way that all you're doing, you're not trying to sell anybody anything. You're just saying, this is the service that I provide. Here's the value that it gives both of you. And I just want to be paid a fee commensurate to the work that I have put in. And I think that that's a, that's a very easy conversation to have if you're very direct and upfront right from the beginning. So that was a long-winded answer. I even, I even have to kind of catch my breath a little bit on the end of that. That's a very long-winded answer, Marv. I hope, I hope that gives a little bit of insight to it. I'd still love to chat uh, more about it uh, after as well. So um, maybe what my email and why, if you can just throw it up is, uh, griffiscre at gmail.com. And then we can set up a call. We can set up a zoom call or email, whatever works for you. But I, I hope that kind of answered your question. Um, anything else pop in there, Wyatt? Uh, from Darren, uh, what are some criteria for a business to do a sale lease back? any metrics that would be good to pull a list and try to get in contact with business owners. I think that this is going to be a very lucrative way for, uh, for all parties involved going forward and sell these backs have been around for a long time, uh, but they haven't been as, as prevalent as they seem to be in the last couple of years. I, I hear uh, people talking about sale leasebacks regularly right now, uh, whether it's a, a company that owns their building and, and maybe to even back up just a little bit for, for those that aren't familiar with it, a sale leaseback is, is a company that owns and occupies their building. And for various reasons, maybe they just want to pull out cash. Um, maybe they need the money for something else, or they just don't want to even be owners anymore. They sell a building to an investor and simultaneously enter into a lease agreement. So the investor gets steady cash flow uh, from, from a company that has been in that property for, for some period of time uh, to begin with. And then the company gets to pull out cash. So it really does create a win-win situation and it creates a win-win-win situation uh, for brokers that that get involved. And quite often this, this does need to happen and it does need to have a third party uh, because the company, if they don't know an investor, they could try to do it themselves, but they're at the mercy of trying to find someone when their business isn't trying to bird dog investors, their businesses, whatever their core business is. So if they uh, put that on the, on the uh, task that with a broker, a broker is much more efficient at knowing what investors are looking for, what opportunities are available. So I think that there's a lot of upside for companies, investors, and brokers to look at sale leasebacks. I think the the biggest thing that I'd recommend is that you need to structure that lease such that it makes sense for both the company, which will then become a tenant, as well as the investor, which then becomes a landlord. So there's the temptation out there that a company will say, I want to sell this building for $10 million, but they only want to pay a lease rate that, uh, that equates to a a nominal cap rate and, and just using completely arbitrary numbers, say that's a three or 4% cap rate. Well, that's, it's understandable. A company wants to get as much money as they can on the sale proceeds, but they also want to pay as little as they possibly can on the lease rate. And that's when you run into the, the, the balance of having to match 
what their expectations are and what they get from sales proceeds and what they pay with lease rates with what an investor will actually pay for that. So I would just be very familiar with what, what, what investors are expecting, whether you use something very simple as just a flat rental rate over 10 years, call it, and you, you apply a cap rate uh, on what's happening in the market. That, that could be a very simple way of doing it. But a lot of investors, particularly ones with experience investing in uh, sale leasebacks, will have, will have very uh, defined metrics that they want to earn. So I just have have conversations with the different investors that you know on 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 what their expectations are. And then if you're talking to companies about it, then just say, I've got a handful of investors. This is the generally what they're looking for. And if you can structure something on that basis, then 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 it's actually pretty straightforward to put together the agreement. Uh, but it's, you need to, you need to find a business that is understanding of the fact that there's a direct relationship between sales proceeds and the amount of rent that they pay and they can't have it all. They can't have high, high sales proceeds and low rental payments. There, there has to be a balance there. So if, if you're able to, to try and find someone that's, that's willing to do it, uh, then I, I think it's a win, 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 uh, for everybody. Uh, the second part of your question, how do you pull a list? Oh, sorry, keep back up on that. Uh, how do you pull a list and try to get in contact with business owners? I, I think that that just comes down to, to prospecting. I mean, there's various lists that, that you can buy, uh, for, for companies. You can, you can target it by area. You can target it by business type. Uh, and, and it's, it's really just a manually intensive process of reaching out to these companies to see if they've they've thought about selling. Uh, sometimes these companies will be proactive and they'll actually reach out to people, but quite often it, it involves a conversation of, of saying, have you guys thought about selling uh, your property and, and using that money for uh, other areas in your business? And, and there's a whole, whole thing that you could say, uh, again, on a value proposition on why it would make sense to do that. Uh, but it's, there, there's no a repository of of property owners that uh, that are thinking about doing a sale lease back unfortunately uh, unless they're actively being marketed and and you might be able to find that uh two websites that i'd recommend if you're in in the u.s go to crexi.com uh, c-r-e-x-i.com if you're in canada go to spacelist.ca and start start doing a search for properties that are for sale and see if in any of those comments uh if it does say it's a sale lease back uh it, I, I think it's a very lucrative way i think I think we're going to hear more and more about sale leasebacks for the foreseeable future. So great question, Darren. Uh, what CRM or project management software do you use? Oh, that's another great question. So I use uh, Zoho. Uh, so it, it's more of a generic CRM, uh, but I've tried everything. I've tried uh, VTS, uh, Salesforce, Rethink. I've tried them all and, I, and I've found that it's it's probably my fault. It's probably not the software's fault, but I've, I found them to be so complex that it was almost overwhelming to me and I couldn't get in a good rhythm of, of using it regularly. So uh, we took a Zoho, an off-the-shelf product, and we customized it for for commercial real estate. So it's got a, a, a lot of the same features uh, that, that those programs have, but it's a much more stripped-down version. And there's a, a guy named Mike Lipsy, who was a trainer in the US and he puts it, he puts it best. The best CRM uh, is the one that you use. So if, if it is a really basic 
software uh, package that you use, but you you're diligent with it and you're inputting things regularly and you're keeping it clean and crisp. I think that that is much better of a software than one with all the bells and whistles that you, that you use intermittently. So I, I, I like Zoho. It's, it's cheap. I think we pay $500 a year for it for each user uh, versus some of them can be thousands of dollars, like $2,000 a year. So I think that the value is great for that one. And it's just simple enough that I use it every day. Uh, with, with, it's one of the first apps that I open, uh, and I'm regularly inputting data in it. So I, I think whatever you do decide to use, just find one that's got the most basic functionality and you can always export that data to a, to a more advanced system down the road if you want. Uh, but I, I think starting with something really simple, uh, but that you use diligently is key. Uh, and I'll happy to talk to you more about that, uh, too, Derek, uh, uh, Darren, uh, offline. If, uh, if you want to chat more about that, because, uh, I, I could say quite a bit about, uh, CRMs and also sell these back. So let me know, Darren, and happy to uh, chat more about that. I think we, I, I'm actually surprised that we, uh, we, we somehow managed to get to an hour on that. Uh, why that was, uh, we, I think we covered a, quite a bit in that topic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, time flew by. It did. Yeah. So I, I know that over the, the summer here, uh, which is still a few months away, uh, we'll, we're going to take a break from having guests on, uh, but I do want to do a monthly kind of ask me anything, uh, where we're just any question that comes to mind, I'll, I'll try to give you a, my honest answer on. So we'll probably try and do one in July and one in August, but we still have a full, uh, set of speakers coming up and some really awesome guests as well so uh please stay tuned uh and and as you guys know i i, I try to leave it uh time open for uh questions for the guests as well as we're going through those so i appreciate everybody that tunes in live i also appreciate anybody that watches this after the fact or listens to it on the podcast version i really do appreciate it and uh if you do get any value from this i always uh, love it if you just uh uh, throw me a comment or or like the video or subscribe if you haven't. Uh, if, maybe one other request too is if if you listen to the podcast version, if you could give that a rating on the podcast, that would certainly help as well. And uh, most importantly, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, and thanks, Wyatt, for agreeing to, to pivot. We pivoted uh, pretty nicely on this. And I uh, always appreciate your help on this as well. Awesome. Glad, uh, glad to be able to do this, Chad, and uh, glad it went well. Thanks again, Wyatt. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Bye, everybody.